that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. I'm Andy Longhurst. We're going to be taking a look at the year of 2013 and uh, our critical urban discussions. This is part one of the 2013 Year in Review here on The City. Stay tuned. Well, it's now December, and it's uh, it's been a, a jam-packed uh, year of uh, lots of different things going on, urban, uh, lots of different discussions and conversations, talks, um, moments of, of uh, contestation, activism. Uh, hopefully we've covered a bit of it here on the program over the past year. Uh, issues like transportation, um, a big issue here in the Vancouver region. Uh, issues like affordable housing and, and questions over gentrification and how neighborhoods might change or if they should change in certain ways. We've also looked at issues around um, the the neighborhoods um, in particular in Vancouver that are going undergoing community planning processes. One in particular, uh, the Wood- Grandview Woodland neighborhood in East Vancouver, and questions over density and towers and height and how, how we see growth and change, and whether uh, it takes into account um, the issues of affordability that exist and, and might be threatened um, under particular forms of development. We've also looked at cultural issues, uh, ranging from the uh, the W two and the uh, Waldorf um, Hotel issue earlier in uh, 2013, and the displacement of culture that we uh, are seeing across the city, whether it be venues or um, grassroots uh, media spaces like W two, or if it's uh, movie theaters and the loss of um, historic neighborhood movie theaters. Uh, we, we've done an attempt on the program to to give you a bit of those conversations and to talk about those histories. And, and the politics around these issues as well. So as we look back to 2013, we're going to do this uh, in three parts over the month of December, going back to some of those um, discussions around a variety of these issues, like arts and culture, like transportation, like sustainability, uh, like housing, um, gentrification, and, and so much more. 
And uh, not only looking to Vancouver, but also these discussions have also um, and, and made an attempt to, to look beyond uh, just our backyard and, and look to places like um, Brazil, where we saw um, a social movement rise up over quality of life concerns and access to mobility in the city. So we'll revisit these conversations um, over, over uh, the next couple of weeks on the program here. So thanks again for being with me. So in the first uh, part of the program, I want to go to uh, a conversation with former uh, Vancouver City Councilor uh, Ellen, Ellen Woodsworth. And uh, she was a city councilor um, for a number of years here in the city of Vancouver and uh, with the party, the Coalition of Progressive Electors. And uh, we chatted um, in the midst of, of the w, uh, excuse me, the Waldorf and the W2 um, issues around uh, culture and, and fears about losing culture. And this is my conversation uh, with Ellen Woodsworth. Ellen, can you tell me about uh, the Waldorf and uh, your take on the situation and, and what the city should be doing to, to deal with it and prevent future Waldorfs from occurring? I think the Waldorf uh, sale and the possible loss of the cultural space and the housing that's in the Waldorf is the breaking point for many people in the cultural community and is of a huge concern to people in the cultural community across the city because so many spaces have been lost, whether to condo development. We've lost the Red Gates, the Pantages, the Hollywood, the Ridge, uh, and possibly W2, and many other spaces. I think there's rapacious condo development in the city that's driving the face of the city and driving artists and low-income people out of the city. So I, I was really shocked today when the motion by the city of Vancouver called on a uh, 20-year, 20-day um, hiatus because I, I think actually city needs to be directing staff to come up with a city-wide plan to help support existing uh, cultural space and existing affordable housing as well as being proactive to set guidelines so that the developers can't go in and buy up inexpensive land and tear down everything that's there and, and create really unaffordable housing. Some are saying that this just gives the developer Solterra a bargaining chip um, to bargain or, or uh, ask for a density bonus on the site um, if maybe the Waldorf is seen as the community amenity or whatever the case may be, do you share that concern or uh, do you have other concerns as well? Well, I think that that's absolutely what looks like is happening is that uh, Saltero will negotiate with the city, uh, request additional density either there for another site and uh, walk all, all the way to the bank laughing and uh, the cultural community will, will lose uh, there's wonderful venue, and I think it could be similar to what we saw happen with the um, with the cultural facility on Commercial Drive, uh, the, the old Rio Theater, and um, what's happened to the Van East City uh, uh, Cinema site, 
and another other, a number of other cities, sites in the city. And I think the, the Grandview Woodlands area plan is not complete. The local area plan in the downtown east side is not complete. And yet the city is allowing the speculators to come in. They're rezoning to suit them. And they're, the city doesn't get back nearly what they've lost. And we're losing places for young people and workers and the cultural community to live and uh, to work. And it's soon it's going to be a city that does not work. Any final comments? Or do you want to leave it at that? Well, I think the city government, government is there and the staff are there to try to create cities that work for everyone. Uh, and I think what's happening is we're getting the greenest city in the world that's completely unaffordable. So it's a city for the wealthy. And I think that we have to stand up against that and call for a... Uh, using public monies and public lands uh, to create a city that is affordable for the workers and the artists and the young people and the seniors and the immigrants who make cities work. Former Vancouver City Councilor Ellen Woodsworth, and uh, she was speaking to me in January um, about the Waldorf um, and other uh, uh, cultural spaces that are uh, being threatened or were being threatened at the time uh, within the city of Vancouver. And uh, in, uh, in uh, November of 2012, um, Loic Wakant, a professor of sociology at the University of California at Berkeley, gave a talk at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver and uh, he was discussing um, issues of urban poverty, urban marginality, ethno-racial um, exclusion and domination, the rise of the penal state, um, and social theory. And that um, talk was um, broadcast in February of 2013 here on the city. And we're going to hear um, a bit from Loic Wakant, professor of sociology and um, uh, a very well-renowned um, urban social theorist. Uh, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to draw on Bourdieu's theory of social space and symbolic power, and I'm going to build a bridge between my two books, Urban Outcasts and Punishing the Poor, uh, to bring into a single model uh, um, the emergence of the precariat, the precarious fractions of the post-industrial proletariat. Um, the emergence of that precariat with shifts in public policies that have both caused the emergence of the precariat and then are there to handle the consolidation of the precarious fractions of the post-industrial proletariat, the problem categories and problem territories in the dualizing cities. So the emergence of the precariat on the one hand, that's an outcast, and then shifts in public policies aimed at managing problem populations and problem territories in the dualizing cities, that's essentially going to be uh, punishing the poor. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to track uh, the rise of a new regime of advanced marginality that I characterize as uh, defined by the fragmentation, fueled by the fragmentation of wage labor, by the recoiling of the protective net of the social welfare state, and by a distinctive phenomenon that I highlight in urban outcasts called territorial stigmatization. Then I'm going to argue that, uh, that states have responded to the objective and social, to the objective and subjective social insecurity that this new regime of urban poverty has spawned uh, by rolling out its penal apparatus by essentially a, a, a government technique that I characterize as punitive containment, by deploying the police, the courts, and carceral institutions, jails, the prison, parole, probation, and so on, in and around the neighborhoods of relegation that are the incubator of the precariat. 
And I want to propose, in particular, that inter international variations in the intensity, the concentration, and the segmentation of advanced marginality are matched by differences in the vigor and the modalities of penalization of poverty in the different societies, in keeping with the different architecture of the bureaucratic field and the texture of citizenship evolved in each country. Um, I'm, I'm not going to have the time to go international too much, but I can send you to uh, several volumes that actually have taken that model and have tried to apply it to different countries. There is recently a volume by uh, Lee and Squires that came out uh, in England called Urban, uh, Urban Marginality and Penalization that covers England. There's a book by Sanchez on Spain. Uh, there's a, a, a book by Batista Malaguti that just came out, a collective book that takes model that I propose and applies it to Brazil. Uh, and there's also a, a, a great uh, young German political scientist by the name of Marcus Müller, who's been just putting out paper after paper on Mexico. Uh, I just got one this morning prior to leaving and showing that, oh, that you seem to have built a model for Mexico. Well, I don't know anything about Mexico, but it works perfectly. You adapt here and there. So, there, so I'm not going to have time to go in that direction, but I, I'll be happy to point you um, uh, in the direction of work that has been done that shows that the model is not simply although it was constructed for core countries of the capitalist north, and particularly based on the most advanced of the United States, it has applicability not only to Western Europe, but to what I would call second world societies, and particularly uh, to Latin America, and to including the, the former Soviets, the, the, the nations that have emerged out of the former Soviet empire. I think it's also another area where much of the, the rise of the precariat, a structurally precarious fractions of the post-industrial proletariat, has, 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 has coalesced, and then that a response by local and central governments to the coalescence of this precarity has been to ramp up the police, the courts, and the prison system as a way to curb the disorders associated with the rise of that precariat, and as a way to signal the authority and the sovereignty of the state in an era where the state sees its sovereignty eroding. And so that's essentially what I'm going to argue. So I'm going to essentially take you on a whirlwind tour tell you an analytic tale highlighting key concepts and mechanisms in these two books, each of which sums up over a decade of research. I'm going to be, to be deliberately savage my own work. I'm going to be theoretically crude, conceptually schematic, and empirically simplistic for the sake of clarity and the interest of time, and also for igniting discussion, because I'll be very happy to introduce qualifications and nuances in responses to, to your questions. Also, I feel like you know, in a presentation like this, in the, you know, in the lecture, you know, there's there's there are two books that run over 800 pages together, and there's probably another thousand pages of written text. If you want the precise, you know, technical, well done, well documented, you know, go to the go to the written work. Uh, so hopefully, I will encourage you, I'll incite you to go to the books or to go back to the books if you realize that you've missed the story. And so, what I'm going to start to do is I'm going to start clarifying the epistemological ground on which uh, I stand as I, as I develop this work and, and to show you how much of this work is essentially taking Bourdieu into the ghetto. You know, and, and it's an aspect of the work that sort of goes without saying for me, but, uh, but it, it, sometimes goes, it sometimes goes unnoticed by those who read the work. So I'm going to clarify a little bit the underpinnings um, of this. Uh, and then, for those who want to read more, there's going to be a special issue of the journal, International Journal of Urban Regional Research on taking Bourdieu to town. Uh, it's going to essentially develop that. I think it's actually going to be two, two issues uh, with uh, a dozen papers that are going to show the, <coughs> the productivity and the potency and interest of taking Bourdieu to town. 
and there's also another special issue of environmental planning that uh, we're preparing on territorial stigmatization that takes up one of the themes of today's talk and develops it in, in different uh, countries. But let, let, let's go first to the epistemological foundation uh, because oftentimes it's 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 it's, a, it's the reason for misunderstanding. Um, in the Anglo-American social science is, is, is dominated by positivism or variants of empiricism. In the German tradition, uh, the Geist, Geist's Wissenschaften are dominated by hermeneutics. And when you come out of the French tradition, you come out from a different philosophical angle, from a different philosophy of science. This philosophy of science is, we can characterize briefly by the expression of Dominique Lecourt, characterizing the work of Camille as historical rationalism. Historical rationalism is this philosophy of science derived from the work of Gaston Bachelard, whom you're seeing on the left, uh, and Georges Camillem, the philosophers, the mathematician Jean Carayès, and the intellectual historian Alexandre Coyere. The other person you're seeing on the right here is Marc Bloch, the historian, um, um, author of the craft of the historian, in particular, and founder of the Adal School of, of uh, social history, which really is an adaptation of the Durkheimian principles of sociology to history. Mm. And, and you can see here this rationalist um, lineage actually going all the way back from Condorcet down to Kant, uh, down to Durkheim, uh, on down to his philosophical variant, Bachelard and Canguillem. Canguillem, who was the teacher of both Foucault and Bourdieu. This is one, one of the reasons for the similarity between them is that they have the same uh, mentor. Um, and let me just highlight what the principles of historical rationalism are. First, truth is conceived as error rectified in an endless effort to dissolve knowledge that is already there. And reason is the capacity not for rectitude, but for rectification. Second principle, uh, historical rationalism teaches that, and this is to quote from Ian, there is no fact that is not suffused by theory no law that is not a momentarily stabilized hypothesis, and no theory that is not polemical. Mm. I think you will see that those principles well illustrated. <laughs> Third, historical rationalism insists that concepts be characterized not by static definitions, but by their uses and by their interrelationships in the research process. And this, in this perspective, the crucial scientific act is the construction of the object, or as Bourdieu, put it, and Bourdieu retranslated essentially Bachelard's epistemology, which is an epistemology issued from the study of physics and chemistry for the social sciences, in particular in his book, uh, The Craft of Sociology, which I studied as an undergrad uh, in the University of Paris before I met Bourdieu. And so I was well prepared when I met him and commenced a 20-year collaboration and friendship with him. You know, I, it was like, it wasn't like I had to, it was difficult to adopt that epistemology. That's the one I had already, uh, I already learned. And, so Bourdieu puts it thus, he says, the social fact is conquered, conquered against common sense, both lay common sense, but also policy common sense, but also scholarly common sense. It is constructed, and it is constated, observed. Uh, and this translates into three principles, the imperative of rupture, rupture with common sense, lay policy, scholarly. Um, and this, you will see how this becomes the stress that I put on the difference between folk concepts and analytical concepts, there must be a clear demarcation between these. Second principles, there's a formative role of theory in the construction of the object. Third principle, what we can call the principle of epistemic reflexivity, we must constantly know and control the operations whereby we produce our object in the very act of production, not after having written the book as a sort of rhetorical uh, preface or postface to the book. 
at every moment as we are doing our research operations, we must constantly reflect on what it is that we are doing that is actually producing the object that we are constructing, not finding, not discovering, not... And I'm going to add three principles taken directly from Bourdieu. Uh, fourth principle, the relational or the topological mode of reasoning, where each element takes its meaning from, in, from its position in a system of relations and where the architecture of those relations is the principle of the motion of the different elements. And I'm going to apply this relational or topological mode of reasoning to what I believe is the triad at the heart of Bourdieu's work, is the relationship between symbolic space, social space, and physical space. Symbolic space, the categories, the notions that we have in our head, uh, you know, things that exist in our imagination, so to speak, how this becomes translated into social space, into actual distribution of efficient resources, to individuals and institutions that we can project into a two-by-two two dimension of volume of capital and composition of capital. And thirdly, physical space, you know, the, the built environment. And it's this triad, this relationship between social, symbolic space, social space, and physical space that is the underlying analytic that orients uh, all of my work. And uh, uh, lastly, I'm going to, uh, uh, or fifthly, the rule of triple historicization. This is how I have to start off doing one sentence. It's not typically the presentation that Bourdieu gets, but Bourdieu is pretty easy when you get down to it. Because there's a small set of principles that he applies to everything. And one of these principles is the rule of triple historicization. Uh, elements come to cohere the way they do in some symbolic space, social space, physical space because of the particular historical concatenation of action that assembled them in this particular configuration. Therefore, we must historicize three things, triple historicization. We must historicize the social world. For instance, we must do a history of neighborhoods of relegation. We must do a history of public policies. We must do a history of urban uh, structures. But we must also historicize the agents. And this is where the category of habitus comes in. It's a way of saying we have to learn the history of the agents to know how the agent acquired a particular set of dispositions that leave him or her to see the world in a particular way and to act uh, on the possibilities of the world in that particular way. And the third is to historicize the categories of the analyst, including the concepts of urban sociology, including the concepts of, urban, of criminology and urbanism. And then last, because I'm going to stop here to go into the the meat of the map, that uh, is preliminary, very French. <laughs> but you're going to see, hopefully, when we return, when we come full circle to the conclusion, I hope to have, I hope that I will have shown you that it did serve a purpose to highlight those principles because those principles were necessary to be able to tell you those empirical theoretical stories that I'm going to tell you. And Loic Vuquant certainly does give you that entire uh, story. And you can check that out at thecityfm.org. And uh, again, this is the year in review, uh, part one, um, looking back at 2013. And also in February of 2013, um, I spoke with uh, Jean Swanson. She is a community activist and author of Poor Bashing, The Politics of Exclusion. And uh, we were discussing the rapid uh, change and uh, gentrification going on in Vancouver's Chinatown and uh, why the significant influx of condominiums and high-end retail uh, are threatening to displace the neighborhood's low-income residents. And again, uh, this is from uh, February of this, of this year, and we're going to go to that uh, brief conversation with Jean Swanson. The Carnegie Community Action Project is sounding the alarm on 
the movement of real estate capital into Chinatown and the approval of many new condo towers. And the neighborhood is already looking very different uh, than it did just only a few years ago. We see high-end boutiques, uh, a number of trendy and expens expensive restaurants, and um, designer furniture stores popping up um, along the Main Street corridor. So what's in store for Chinatown and the downtown east side? Um, I'm talking right now uh, next with Gene Swanson, and I caught up with Gene to chat about the approval of a number of condo towers uh, coming into the neighborhood and what this will mean um, for the already rising rents um, of, low, of, of existing low-income housing and the possibility um, that it will disappear um, if it's not preserved and the city works to do that. Um, so we're going to turn now to Gene Swanson. Can you, can you first outline some of the concerns that um, the Carnegie Community Action Project has with uh, rezonings and redevelopments coming forward or, have, or that have already been approved in Chinatown? Yeah, there's 561 new condo units that are proposed for Chinatown over the next year or two. This is more than Woodward's. With Woodward's, we've got 125 units of, of welfare rate social housing. With these Chinatown units, we're getting 11. What's worse, there are 388 units in privately owned and society owned hotels and apartment buildings that are now relatively low rent. And with those 561 condos going in, property values are going to go up, taxes are going to go up, rents are going to go up, and low-income people are going to be displaced. And this city has done nothing, nothing to protect these people. It could end up homeless. Right now... Uh, the city... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Has a, the city has a downtown Eastside housing plan that says that the rate of change should be for every one condo built, there should be one unit of social housing built. But in Chinatown, over the next couple of years, the ratio is not going to be one to one. It's going to be 51 condos to one welfare rate social housing unit. And and why is Chinatown not being considered within... This is the downtown east side Oppenheimer district, is that correct? Chinatown is in the downtown east side, but it is one of eight sub-districts in the downtown east side. The Oppenheimer area is another sub-district. Right. And, but just to, to uh, further question on your point, it's this... One-to-one um, -one is not being uh, recognized or respected because, for what, again, for what reason? You'll have to ask the council. Yeah. I have no idea. They don't care, I guess. Also, right now, the downtown east side is undergoing a local area planning process. Can you... Um, Give me a, a brief update on where that's at and, and 
um, council has said that these a number of these rezonings that have come through were initiated before the local area planning process was underway and therefore they can be approved. Um, what's your response on that as well? Well, they have said that, but approving them is going to destroy the character of the low income and the assets of the low income community. What else can I say? There's a lot of good things about the downtown east side as a sense of community. People who are marginalized in other places don't feel judged. They feel accepted. There's a sense of belonging. Uh, there's a sense of working for social justice. There's a real appreciation of diversity. Uh, the acceptance is huge. And all that's changing with condos. Uh, the other aspect is not just housing, it's stores. Uh, in the downtown side, before gentrification, there were stores that low-income people could afford to go to. Now that's changing. Places where haircuts used to be $8, they're $50. Because... The new businesses that are going into these gentrified condos are all upscale. And they hire security guards and police to keep low-income people away. Are, are you feeling that council and, and city staff are seeing, are, are arguing that Chinatown is um, completely distinct from... Um, the, the downtown east side low-income community? Is that the sense that you're getting? They are arguing that, but there are a lot of low-income people that still live in Chinatown, including low-income Chinese, people of Chinese ancestry. Right. And they're not acknowledging the impact of gentrification on these people. When you make, when you make the point about displacement by um, the the loss of um, and the rising rents um, at SROs. Is this, is this a challenging argument because they'll argue that it's not direct displacement, um, which is seen, is, is that where some of the debate is around as well? These new buildings going in are not directly displacing people, therefore this is not displacement? You try that. That's, yeah, they try that. Is, that's part of their logic? Yeah. Yeah. I've I've noticed dramatic changes, as I'm sure everyone has in parts of Chinatown. Very high end boutiques and stores and restaurants going in, um, but a lot of people uh, tend to say that this is about social mix. Um, what's your response to that? Social mix is a euphemism for destroying the low income community. Uh, this is a community that fought for and won the only safe injection site in North America. This is a community that had to occupy a police board meeting in order to get the police board to put out the same reward for the missing women that it put out for garage robbers on the west side. This is a community that had to fight for seven years to get a community center like other people have. This is a community that had to camp out on a beach for a whole summer in order to get a waterfront park like other communities have. This community 
has a history of fighting for human rights. And if the city destroys that by condofying the whole thing and displacing low-income people, it will be destroying one of the most valuable assets it has. And this is the 2013 Year in Review here on The City on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. We're going to continue our Year in Review Part 1 uh, here on the program. And next up, we have a conversation with Adrian Carr, uh, a city councillor um, from the Green Party. And we're discussing uh, in this clip uh, affordable housing and the, the market um, uh, market rental housing program that the city of Vancouver under Vision Vancouver created um, called Secured, um, it's called STIR, um, now called Rental 100. And the program is intended to incentivize and provide subsidies to developers um, to create purpose-built rental housing. And we discuss this program and some of uh, Councillor Adrian Carr's concerns with it. And again, this is from early 2013. Adrian Carr has been active in the Green Party for many years, and uh, she's run provincially, federally, and locally. And in the November 2011 municipal election, uh, she secured the last seat on council based on the city's at-large voting system and became the first Green Party councillor elected to Vancouver City Councilor. She is currently one of three councillors not part of the ruling Vision Vancouver, and along, uh, she, along with her colleagues, uh, two colleagues from uh, the Nonpartisan Association, the NPA. On February 25th, uh, I spoke with Councillor Carr at length about a number of issues um, and her concerns as a city councillor and uh, a number of issues ranging from housing to transportation um, and the very definition of affordability and and her concerns about ways it's being um, redefined uh, in the city. Um, So that uh, we're going to go into right now. This is uh, City Councillor Adrian Carr. Well, can you first tell me you have an interesting motion going to council tomorrow um, on February 26th. Can you tell me uh, what uh, you're uh, taking to council? Uh, My motion for the council meeting of February 26th is about the affordability of the housing, the rental housing that's being created by the former STIR program, the Short-Term Incentives for Rental Housing Program. Um, And my questions uh, are really what... Uh, what did STIR deliver in terms of housing um, at rent that is truly affordable to the average Vancouverite? And after that point, um, in terms of where housing has then been created, um, actually in, in, you know, built, um, have the rents stayed true to the original projection of what those rents might be? So we have two two issues here. The first one being when when rezonings often go through STIR, or now it's uh, called Rental 100, the program, um, a proposed rent is included by the developer um, to staff and to counselors um, to help um, in making that decision to approve or reject the rezoning. So that's the first issue. And, and um, Councillor Card, in these, have you seen um, that these rents um, are on target to be um, at that average um, income? No, they're all over the map. The, red, the rents that um, are projected by the developers um, don't necessarily come in at an affordable level, but 
truth be told, we only really got a figure that uh, that nails down what affordable is and what it means to an average person, a single person that's in the rental market in Vancouver. So in, in the last council meeting two weeks ago, uh, we had a staff report. The report card was on um, housing and homelessness, and in that it identified a figure of $975 per month as the, the amount of rent the average single person in the city of Vancouver who's uh, in the rental market can afford to pay. Well, now that we've got that figure, it, it allows us to, to establish a benchmark. If that's the figure of sort of average Vancouverite rental, then what has this public program, this program that has been put in place with follow-up pro- programs ongoing now, um, at a cost to taxpayers, what has it actually delivered in terms of truly affordable rents? How many are over? How many are at that level of 975 a month? How many are under? Um, I, you know, I haven't kept track of all of the programs, and some of them predate my time on council. So, uh, But I do know that some of the ones that I've seen come to the council table are much higher than that $975. I'd just like to know what what you know what the stats are let's all get at least the same figures from which we can work how affordable has the actual housing the rental housing um been that has been approved at the city council table in terms of affordability for the average vancouverite when you say this is coming at a public cost to uh vancouver taxpayers what do you mean by that and most of the programs, in fact, um, all of the ones except for one that is at the council table now, and I can't talk about it because it's in public hearing, uh, but most of them um, are programs or, sorry, are development proposals where the developer, in exchange for getting, um, uh, you know, higher density and providing to the city um, some, you know, new rental housing, has been um, alleviated of the cost of having to to come up with a community amenity contribution and in some cases the development cost levies. And those are in the multi-millions of dollars. So, you know, those those are real benefits to the developer. That's the cost that in a, in a sense the taxpayers of the city have to pick up because every development project does have community amenity um, outcomes or, or, or needs as well as development needs. So if the city's picking up the tab, the taxpayers, um, I want to know, is it to provide really affordable housing or not? This is the city here on CITR Year in Review 2013.
and one of my favorite tracks from 2013. That's the Abramson Singers uh, on their album Late Riser, the track Liftoff Cannon. And in uh, March of uh, this past year, I spoke with um, Matty Simiatiki, and he is a professor at the University of Toronto's um, Department of Geography and Program and Planning, and he specializes in transportation policy. And uh, we discussed um, the future of um, transportation in Metro Vancouver, and in particular, uh, the $2.8 billion UBC Broadway subway line proposal, and uh, the effect this might have on, um, on land use and development along the Broadway corridor. And uh, also asking questions um, that I think are critical and necessary for us to ask about the effect that this might have on affordable housing um, rental stock along the Broadway corridor. Again, this is Professor Maddie Simiatiki. The debate in Vancouver right now is is uh, certainly centered around um, uh, a push by the city of Vancouver and the current um, city council. Um, Vision Vancouver City Council to push for a $2.8 billion uh, tunneled subway um, from uh, Commercial Driver VCC Clark Station up to up to UBC um, and there are variations of it and, and uh, TransLink has put forward its own study and obviously this has generated a lot of debate um, to what technology uh, this line should take. There's a lot of agreement that Something needs to be done, but what exactly to be done is is sort of up for debate at this point. What do you think um, Vancouver and the region um, should be considering when thinking about this, and and certainly keeping in mind that there are other municipalities and uh, areas south of the Fraser that have been saying, why should Vancouver get all the goodies? I guess within all of this, what are some of the important things that we should keep in mind and ensure that we include in, in this broader discussion? I think the first part of it is to not necessarily identify an ideal technology. That really with transit systems, what you're trying to do is fit the best technology for the conditions that you're planning for. So um, it, in, there are certain planning and urban contexts where a subway makes the most sense. And having it underground, um, whether it's because um, the route is heavily trafficked, whether it's because you already have um, uh, you know, you have cycle lanes, or, uh, whether it's because there's a historic value to what's on the surface. There are going to be certain routes where, uh, or, or where you have extremely high densities and so that they can cover, um, so that the passenger ridership will cover uh, the high cap- initial capital costs. There will be certain contexts where um, an underground line makes a lot of sense, um, but we shouldn't be dogmatic about saying it has to be underground. There are going to be other planning contexts where um, maybe the density isn't as high, maybe the road right-of-way is wider, maybe we're not expecting um, uh, that level of growth, or maybe where the opportunity cost, the cost of building one very expensive underground line, uh, is not does not outweigh the benefit uh, of, of delivering um, an integrated system across the whole region. And so it's really those types of trade-offs that you're trying to balance out when you determine uh, whether to go above ground, uh, on, on surface, uh, on an above elevated guideway, uh, like with some of the SkyTrain system, whether you're going to go in a tunnel. Um, it really is uh, about picking the right technology for the right location with, with the, with the um, uh, proviso that the right technology is not just necessarily what will give you the best flow, per se, but also 
what the costs of those those different options are, and there are there are some pretty significant differences in terms of the cost of building uh, at surface compared to building underground using light rail compared to using automated technologies, uh, and so it's it, the the planning challenge uh, is about is about trying to to find that balance. But there's also a strong political dimension to um, making these decisions uh, in a context where there's limited resources, in a context where um, building a line in one place um, pretty much necessarily means delaying it in other places. Um, and we've seen the types of delays that occur when you build, when you spend a lot of money in one place. Uh, it takes then, from a planning perspective and from a financing perspective, take a long time to arrange that in others. Um, because of that, the politics of uh, these decisions um, can become can become really um, uh, vigorous and can, and and can become really contentious. And having planning models and systems in place um, and processes that that enable people to to debate openly with with um, information, not just about their wants and preferences and dreams, but also with um, what are they willing to put into the pot in order to achieve these and and what are going to be the likely outcomes based on um, uh, sound research. Um, that's, that's, I think, how you tr start to undertake this process of deciding which technology is, is most optimal uh, in, in different places. Um, it's, it's, it's not possible really to say um, without knowing the exact context which types of lines um, and which types of technologies uh, should be built, and not just um, the context today, but the expected context into the future around um, increased densities, around parking policy, um, uh, around around urban design, around expectations for cycling facilities and walking, uh, for business uh, and, and uh, recreational uh, locations and how those are going to change over time. Those are the types of uh, variables and, and types of considerations that you'll use when trying to decide which type of technology um, should go along uh, which individual corridor. But it, it's, it's critical then not just to think of this as one single line, but also to think of it um, very much as a system across the whole um, uh, lower mainland region. What are your thoughts on the the effect that a subway or, or light rail has on forms of development? And I know this is probably not necessarily uh, your research uh, focus, but a lot of concerns have been raised around whether the subway is going to foster a type of uh, sort of metro town or or uh, Vancouver style, Vancouver's Empodium uh, Tower uh, development and, and really increase property values right around these stations. Um, and so we sort of have these pods of, of high, high density, um, but not necessarily sort of the the neighborhood life that we'd like to see or that we already have in existing neighborhoods. Do you have thoughts around that? Yeah, and it, it depends which technologies you're going for. And this is part of a broader community dialogue about um, how you want your city to look, how you want your city to feel, how you want your neighborhood um, uh, uh, to be shaped. Um, transit um, and transit investments are clearly tied to land use. They make the land more accessible, um, and that in many ways drives uh, increased value of that land. It, may, it makes it easier for people who live around them to get to other places in the city. That has a value, and people are willing to pay for it um, in different, in, to different extents depending on what transportation improvements were made. 
And that was Matty Simiotikian. He is an uh, assistant professor in the uh, Department of Geography and Program and Planning at the University of Toronto. And we were discussing uh, transportation issues um, facing the greater uh, Vancouver area. And also in March of 2013, I spoke with uh, now MLA for Vancouver Point Grey, David Eby. And at the time, uh, it was leading up, um, uh, I, I believe, um, what would have been actually weeks and weeks before the election. Um, but we were discussing a lot of the issues that he was hearing on the campaign trail. And uh, this is uh, David Eby, who uh, lost by um, only around 600 votes to Christy Clark um, in a by-election in that very riding. And uh, since um, we know now in the, in the May election, um, he uh, kept uh, Christy Clark out of that riding and uh, was elected. And we discussed, again, uh, also picking up on this issue of transportation because it is such a, an important issue in the region and um, very much uh, always in the news. We were discuss- discussing a lot of the issues, too, around uh, the type of uh, transportation priorities that we should have across the region and how we should uh, think um, holistically about how to decide that and, and questions about the cost and technology and the effect that, that it will have um, on the land use and the neighborhood changes um, as those decisions are made. This is, again, um, now uh, current uh, MLA for Vancouver Point Grey, David Eby. And that's the proposed UBC Broadway line and some concerns emerging uh, directly uh, from from folks with concerns that commercial um, property values would skyrocket and residential property values would skyrocket if, um, well, some of the concerns are stemming from a subway line and the land values right around those stations like we've Mm -hmm. seen along the Canby Corridor um, have skyrocketed. do you share concerns about that? And I guess, firstly, what uh, what's your take on on the current um, uh, dilemma right now? We've we've seen the city of Vancouver, Vision Vancouver, pushing quite uh, aggressively for a subway line, uh, saying that that is the best option and will only deliver uh, the capacity that's required. Mm-hmm. Um, but others have said, why are we looking at the most expensive option? So, what's your take? Yeah. Um, I know Vision's been very aggressive in in pushing the subway uh, option. Um, I know, too, though, that UBC uh, and the AMS uh, have both taken the position that it's not uh, the mode in particular that they want to dictate, but simply that something be done about the transit situation along the corridor. Um, In my conversations with people uh, in the neighborhoods uh, around Broadway and uh, the businesses, um, they're... There are two concerns for the businesses. Uh, one is that they don't want a Canby-style open trench uh, construction project because they won't survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't lose a month of rent, let alone you know a year, two years, mm-hmm. uh, as this project proceeds. Um, so certainly protecting our small and independent businesses and preventing uh, a Canby-style problem for them uh, is, is a critical priority, whatever the mode. And the second concern of people uh, is that um, what the project will do is result in incredible pressure on the city to upzone, which means to put uh, 10 stories on what uh, currently is only four or six story uh, zoning, uh, and then to use those increased developer amenity fees to pay for the transit project itself. 
so in other neighborhoods, these amenity fees go to paying for uh, parks or community centers, community services, and so on. Uh, and the concern is that using this money to pay for the transit system will have a distorting effect of in having the city want to build much taller, um, but also um, will prevent the construction of essential community amenities like community centers and so on, and that it will fundamentally distort uh, the neighborhood from one where there are a lot of parks and community centers and services into one where there are a lot of towers and little else. And so uh, preserving the character of the neighborhood is a critical priority for people regardless of the mode of transportation. And so uh, those are the priorities that I've taken from uh, my consultations. One, that we fix the problem. Two, that we protect our small and independent business. And three, um, that we do it while uh, preserving the character of our neighborhoods.
and this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. Thanks so much for being with me. This is uh, part one of the 2013 Year in Review here on the program, and uh, join me uh, for the next uh, two weeks as we uh, go go back and reflect on uh, a number of the different discussions um, that we've had over 2013. It's been a busy year. And uh, it's always good to uh, take a chance, uh, take a breath, uh, and, and pause and think about uh, what's gone on over the course of the year. And a lot of the really interesting discussions that, uh, that we've had here on the program and a lot of um, brilliant and, and uh, generous um, people that have been very generous with their time to, to talk with me through a number of these issues. So uh, a nice chance to go back to that and, uh, and, and recap. So again, if you uh, are listening here on CATR Live, uh, we're here um, every Tuesday, 5 to 6 p.m., and then we're syndicated on CJSF um, Fridays, 10 to 11 a.m. And as always, uh, check out the program at thecityfm.org, and you can find a full archive of podcasts there. And uh, the clips that I um, played to you are, are only segments from um, the, the past podcast um, for, the, for the year of 2013. So you can certainly go back to that archive and listen to the whole things if anything um, really piqued your interest. So check that out again, thecityfm.org. And on Twitter um, with the handle thecity underscore FM. And on Facebook by searching the city critical urban discussions. I'm Andy Longhurst. And thank you uh, so much for for tuning in, um, tuning in for uh, 2013. And uh, I'll be back next week with more uh, critical urban discussions um, and the 2013 year in review.